Your name's not Dan, you're not coming in. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Raw, the 90s rave podcast. Just a little pre-warning, this episode does contain language and themes which some of you may find offensive or upsetting. But ultimately, we hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Hello and welcome to Raw, the 90s Ray podcast with me, your host, Tom Latcham. Today's guest divides opinion and that's putting it mildly. But one thing nobody can deny is he played a significant role in the 90s rave scene as an artist, promoter and in the media. MC Majika, a.k.a. Aimran Majid, or G, as we're going to call him, performed at some of the decade's biggest events, including as the host of the Carl Cox Experience, as well as being involved in putting on parties. And as you heard in the Gary Jack episode, include Vibelite. Uh, indeed, it would have been unfair not to allow G the opportunity to come on and tackle some of Gary's claims, particularly why he and Gary went their separate ways back in the mid-90s. We've also taken your questions. Some are positive, others slightly less so, which we will be putting to him, and we're not going to shirk from asking any tough ones where necessary. Plus, G's got a book out soon, so we thought we'd get him on and find out a sneak peek of what might be in it. So let's say hello. How you doing, mate? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you? Yeah, no, very good, thank you. Uh, we wanted to get you on. It was absolutely reasonable to do so, uh, particularly after what Gary was saying. We'll come to that later. But before we oh, get I'd there... Like to, I'd like to think you'd have me on here regardless of Gary. I've been, I've been around no, You're right. You're, you are right. To be fair, we were talking before that. So I will say, I will make that clear. You know, we were talking before that. But after he did say all those things, we felt, you know, like, let's get you on now because that's reasonable and fair. But anyway, we'll, we'll come to that a little bit later. Before yeah. that, uh, I want to know from you... What was it that drew you into the 90s rave scene and kept you working very hard in that scene until this day? Um, I, I fell into the the whole scene by accident. So it was never a plan. It was, uh, yes, I did love music. So it stemmed from, from school. Uh, the best subject uh, that I, I actually naturally excelled at was music, but obviously... Uh, being from a sort of Pakistani, you know, Muslim background, you know, you'll find in the Asian community uh, such uh, education is at the forefront and pushed very much so. Uh, so the music thing wasn't really addressed. If that would have been at different times and, and, and a, a, you know, a different place, maybe I would have been pushed in that direction and learn, learn instruments and stuff like that. But it was very, very clear that I was very, very good at music. Um, and so later on, I just got influenced by my brother from sort of, you know, sounds like he went to New York while I was at school and he came back with like Rob Bases, Rock, Public Enemy, Joey Kemp and all these, all these uh, sort of uh, phenomenal hip hop, early hip hop acts and stuff, Eric B and Rakeem. Um, and uh, so I was already sort of feeling and loving music. And I, re I remember being sort of taken to school by my dad. Uh, God, God rest his soul, and uh, listening to music and just listening to sort of pop tunes on the radio. But I was more intricately listening to how the beats were dropping and placing, and I was thinking, what that beat's being repeated and stuff. So I was already sort of feeling stuff from from a young age. Um, what drew me was um, uh, there was a there was a, a a crew that lived in the estate where I lived called the County Close Crew, and uh, they were very much into the rave scene. Uh, and they kept talking about rave scene, rave scene, raves and, and stuff. And it was very, obviously, it was very underground. And it was the late, the late 90s. Um, and uh, um, I actually, I mean, I shouldn't have been doing the job, but I got a job via, via my brother because my brother is a, an ex-world uh, champion uh, weightlifter. And he's, he's from that game, you know, he's from that era of the hard knocks and stuff. And, and I got a job at a rave uh, called Time in the late 90s doing the security. They just needed some extra people on, on the front. 
And there I was, this young kid. My friends walked in and like, they're like, what are you doing here? And they were like, not working. They were like, what? And I'm, I'm like searching these, and I shouldn't have been there. I was, you know, it was totally, <laughs> I wasn't the age appropriate. Um, and uh, I just remember seeing the, the vibe and the atmosphere. So I, I did see how friendly people were. Uh, 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 one thing that, that drew me at the time as well, whilst being at rave, at that time, uh, uh, being Asian, you'd find that sort of what I found was, from my experience, it was very common that, um, especially sort of even Caucasian girls, they wouldn't really, you know, really mingle with, with the Asian guys or not, I don't come near you. And I just, just saw how friendly everybody was in this environment. And I was just like, what the hell? You know, I've got this like, girl who just come over to me and just give me a hug. <laughs> and I was just taken aback by it. And then um, I remember coming back home and then speaking to them and saying, listen, I really want to like come and check this out. And at the same time, I was, I was, I was working in, in uh, you know, in, in clubs. Uh, so there was a very famous club in Birmingham called Coast to Coast. And I worked in there for two weekends, uh, just serving soft drinks. Uh, and I remember T99, Anastasia came on, and I was just like, what the hell is that? Like, like, what? I hadn't heard it, it was like an explosion. It was just like, <laughs> When it came in, da 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 the stabs, and I was like, whoa! And that was the one, that was the, the tune that, that dragged me in. And then, and then obviously, the rest was history. Started speaking to the county close crew, started attending, uh, parties and events and uh, it was just yeah it was euphoric electric everybody together friendly the stuff that we've encountered later like you know the keyboard warriors and stuff like that and hey that just never existed I mean I'm talking about not about the internet side but just opinions and stuff everybody just didn't care they were just like so so in the element uh, well, and in the well, time We'll explore more of that as, as we go through your career uh, throughout this. But the beauty of this podcast is that we look back on the 90s rave scene 20 to 30 years on. And as I say in the intro, you are a man who divides opinion among ravers. But as I say, again, it can't be denied. You, you utterly submerged yourself in that scene in the 90s and you've played a significant role. How do you view your place in the 90s rave scene? Um, I think... Um... First and foremost, I was the first British Asian artist to come through in the rave game. Um, so I think that was that was a big thing for me. And it was a testing time for me, which we can we can dwell on when, when you want to pick up that point. But um, uh, I think I played a, a, a pivotal role. I think I played an important role. Um, and uh, I broke down some barriers at the time as well. As I said, I was the first of, first of the kind coming through as an Asian, British Asian. Um, and I worked my socks off and I, I got involved in many, many elements and I, and I grew rapidly, very quickly. And, and that was because um, I had this drive. I had this drive time. It was driven. I was driven anyway before I even came into, into this, you know. Um, you know, I love sport and stuff like that. I had a chance to play for Warwick in cricket. Uh, I had a road accident, didn't, didn't pursue that. Found the rave scene, probably could have still had time to find cricket. Um, was was destined to become a doctor. Uh, did really well at, uh, uh, with my A levels. Uh, went back into education later on in life, which we'll touch on later. Um, and um, I did a lot of things, and I, I did a lot of important things, and I made a lot of statements. And uh, uh, I think my style as well, which you know, love me or hate me. At the end of the day, love me or hate me. I rocked raves 
end of. And that's not me being egotistical. That's not me being rude or big-headed. I was there for a purpose. I was put on flyers. What, why was I put on flyers by, by promoters? Because I'm Asian? No. Uh, because um, any other reasons? No. They put me on there because I got the job done. If you didn't like me, that was just part and parcel. That's just life. Yeah, at times back then, it was very hard to deal with because I was still very young and very inexperienced. And even, even today, some of the things that you read and stuff, I'm not a robot, I'm not a machine, I'm human. And um, some of the things I read, it's just like, really? Okay. Uh, and as I said, we'll touch on those things, but I'll well, I mean, be wrong. I'll I, I, be wrong. I, I mean, the thing is, you know, whether people like you or don't like you, as we see <laughs> with someone like Robbie Savage, for instance, uh, they're... they're even if someone doesn't like that person, they will often follow or engage with what that person does. So, you know, you don't need to be popular to be successful is is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. and, and finally, just before we then move into your early years and you're early getting into raving, some have even said that you're not deserving of being on the 90s rave podcast. Now's your opportunity to tell them why they're wrong. Well, listen, let's talk about those type of people. Who are they? Who are those people and what do they represent and where do they come from and what's their background and what's their profile? The bottom line is this, as I said, I was the first British Asian artist. I played at every single rave up and down the country. I was in the media spotlight. I presented on MTV. I went onto Radio 1 as a guest, an artist. I was in the, in the in national newspapers. Um, I got myself on television and local news. I flew the flag of this scene it wasn't just about propelling and pushing me yes i was part of the part of the journey but it was about what i loved and yes i'm pushing myself but i'm pushing an overall picture here um i've grafted my my ass off grafted being booked by every single promoter in the land um got touted by the biggest argument arguably the biggest dj in the world why did he choose me why did he choose me? We should he point chose... out that's, that's Carl Cox for anyone. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why did he choose me? He chose me like all those promoters because I got the job done. I went up there and I was crowd orientated. I wasn't about lyrics and bars. I was about atmosphere. It was what I was feeling. I engaged with people. Um, for people to say that I was undeserved is pure, pure hate and jealousy. I have worked my socks off. I am still relevant today. Today, 2021, I'm still living and I'm still doing stuff and I'm proactive. I'm very, very proactive. Uh, I'm not going to talk about other people because, I'm, you know, I can only talk about me, but I'm, I'm very proactive. And so for people to say that, Tom, that's, and you're, you're no fool, mate. You're, 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 you're a wise guy. That's jealous. That's jealous talk. Oh, people he's not deserving. People don't, call, people don't call me wise very often, I'll be honest. Well, so, uh, well I'll, 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 just, I'll take that. Thank you. Listen, man, you are, you are, you are, you are. <laughs> Uh, well, look, listen, we're going to come on to all of those matters uh, as we move through uh, through this episode. I've got absolutely no doubt. But if you want to uh, give us a shout, please do. Uh, you can get in touch. Hello at the 90s Ray podcast uk on email. We're on all your social media channels. And also, if you fancy giving us a few quid to help us uh, keep this show on the road, be much obliged gofundme.com forward slash the 90s rave podcast. We've got loads more coming up with G. Don't go anywhere. It's about a fresh up. It's about a roar.
So we're here with uh, MC Majika, a.k.a. G, as we're calling him. He's still here. I want to go back uh, to your early years, G, because everyone in the rave scene's got their idea of what they think you're like and has an opinion on you, which you know we're going to explore. But for some context, back to your early years, apart from being sporty and, and good at school, what were you like as a kid? So, I was pretty quiet, to be honest. Um as a kid um i knew what i wanted to do so i was i was driven in areas but i was i was very quiet um, really that is that's quite surprising yeah i was i, I was and, and, in, and in places i still am even though i'm here talking and i'm very fluent and stuff i still am I, in, in places i, I still am quite quiet I, I take after my dad really uh god rest his soul um, he was a very quiet man and uh so i was i was, I was a bit quiet um it was only until later, later on into my teens, I started to get a little bit confident and, you know, uh, expressing myself and music. And I'd find these little windows and I'd show myself in a, in a sort of a brighter light. Uh, and that came a little bit later on into my sort of late teenage years. Uh, were you, so you, you, you grew up in Birmingham in a second generation Muslim family. Um, mm. were, that, were, you, were you a practicing Muslim as a child? Um, yeah, well, part of our culture is to uh, attend mosque. So after school every day, I attended mosque, and uh, um, and it's as I said, it's part of the culture, and it's still an ongoing process today. It, it, it did affect uh, uh, education because it was just very, very sort of very draining in terms of you had to come home you were all at school for the full day you came home you went to a mosque i had to travel some some distance as well uh, about a half an hour you know to get there and then uh, then i'd be there for two hours and it was you know it was it was it was quite a, a harsh environment in terms of learning it's not like going to a sort of a club environment where you you know you're sort of like a school club environment where it's fun and games it's just straight straight boom down the line you're learning the quran and uh, uh, and it was very difficult uh, because uh, my parents weren't doing the right thing which which, which they've become accustomed to and, and grown by themselves so it, you know uh, but it was a very hard process and and it affected education at some point uh, and it, even though I, in, what, I, what, in I, what way in what way um well even though I, I ended up academically doing well my learning process was slower i was i was still i was a slow learner uh, to absorb and take on the information and that was because there was so much other stuff going on and uh, uh and, it, and it did it did affect the, the learning curve in terms of speed and and, and are you still a practicing muslim now or have you uh left that faith behind um no 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 i haven't left the faith i, I wouldn't say i was fully practicing but i i respect massive elements so you know um okay. uh, uh, i i do the for friday jumma prayer which is like the sunday service to christianity so I do that, and then I do do little prayers and stuff, and and sort of getting more onto it. And I think that might be an age thing as well, because that's very common. But um, I have been doing the Friday prayer thing for, for many, many years, many years. Okay. Well, I mean, it all sounds pretty different to the rave scene, frankly. Um, in terms of the, what it was like as well as a kid, I know you've said you, you, you were musical, and that was what drew you in, into the rave scene. We ask a lot of people about this, particularly as we interview lots of people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds about their childhood. You grew up in Birmingham. I know, obviously, in the seventies, in the in Birmingham, it was a pretty racist area. There was uh, it was an NF stronghold and that sort of stuff. How, how did that um, 
what was that like growing up amid that? Um, it was it was hard to see it. Hard to see it. Um, where 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 I grew up was an area called Sturchley. Uh, and in Sturchley, you had the Sturchley skins. And even if you walk past certain landmarks, you'll still see etched in the brickwork Sturchley skins fading out, still there. It's, you, know, you still see some of it. And it was a prolific movement. And uh, I think my brother felt it more because he's, he's older than me. Right. Uh, and he, he felt the, the repercussions of, of that movement. They weren't nice. They weren't nice. They were, were, they were you know, dressed up. The, the, the bomber jackets, the boots, and they they were out there, and they you know packy bashing. It was it was it was it was real, and uh, uh, people's mentalities as well. You know, I grew up in an area which was predominantly back then um, Caucasian, so the acceptance and how they spoke to us and how they dealt with us was 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 quite harsh. Um, even even at school, um, you know, I went to a school called Bourneville Juniors, and I remember an incident. I remember it very, very, very well today. I had a friend called James, and uh, I really wanted him to come to my my home, uh, as as kids do. You go to each other's homes, and and uh, he said, "Well, I can't come to your house because my dad said I can't go to a packy's house." And I remember seeing his mum after school, and I said, "Is is this?" Is this true? And I remember her going all red and uh, just sh shying away from it and not answering. Um, yeah, there was there was. How did that make you feel when you would hear, have encounter incidents like that? It was very sad, very sad, and I felt very low and mm -hmm. uh, very lonely in places. And the racism was was, was quite rife, and it, and it and it and it sort of spiraled uh, even further down the line. Even when I went to secondary school, I went to a school called Kings Norton Boys, which I believe is a great establishment now. It's very multicultural. Things are different now, but back then it was it was very very sort of uh, uh, um, 99 percent Caucasian. Uh, the teachers didn't manage racism well. The kids, the education for the kids in terms of how they would communicate, even with the minority, was very, very poor. And there was even racism from teachers. I remember one one time where I went to tie my shoelace, and the teacher went, "Oh, what are you doing down there? You're praying to Mecca." Now, if that was done today, what would be the repercussions of that? Be enormous. Mm -hmm. But they could get away with it back then, and it was like it was like it was okay to do those things. And 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 what impact did incidents like that have on the adult G? Um, yeah, well, <clears throat> it's, it lingered with me. It stayed with me. I still remembered those um, those moments, and I, I remember. Um, and I'm, I'm like that elephant, you know, kind of uh, don't forget things very well when it comes to stuff uh, in general. And uh, I remember having a sort of rest a restorative justice moment with two of the people that were at, at the forefront of that, and I remember them going and speaking because they were in touch with other lads at the time this was only sort of like i would say sort of you know 15 years ago you know something like 10 years ago and they they were all you know the word got back to me that people were like bloody hell you know what we did back then and, and why we did it yeah we were young but the impacts we had on him and i was even getting messages from other people that were in the school year saying listen we're really sorry that we made you feel like that um it was it was tough man and that's the reality of it. And I saw a comment um, on on one of the posts the other day. Oh, you know, because of Gary Jakes' thing about when I was when I was insulted racially, and someone said, "Oh, it's only a name." It's easy for someone from somewhere of Caucasian descent to say it's only a name. 
It's easy for them. Let's look at it now. If, what if I was black in this day and age now and I was called the N-word? Yeah, was it, is it okay? Is it just the name? I think millions of people would think differently. And I think there's a lot of naivety and a lot of ignorance out there when it comes to race. Oh, it's okay, it's just the name. I remember when I was receiving racism in the scene, and I won't, I won't mention the guy's name, he's a household hardcore DJ, and he's Caucasian. He went, oh, there's no racism. And I went, how? And I was, I was with him in a foreign country at the time. I was touring in Canada. And I said to him, listen, how can you tell me as a Caucasian guy coming from a Caucasian city, predominantly Caucasian, tell me that there's no racism? To me, to a British Asian guy who's felt the wrath of that. And he, he just sort of like, and, and then I looked at it and I just sort of analysed and thought the psychology of it. He's not had that education. He's not had that experience. And he's just speaking quickly off the cuff without any really knowledge or, or, or understanding. And that's the majority of the mindset of the people out there. Like, for example, you just said someone said before, even though I'm digressing a bit, oh, he's not deserving of being coming on here. You're not thinking. If you're logical and you're sensible and you're going to think, you'll think, yeah, whether we like this guy or not, this guy's been around a long time. It's about thinking. And, and that's the thing here. People don't think or they don't understand because they're not going to understand because they've not lived that life. And experienced well, that well I, mean, I mean, hopefully, you know, you doing this podcast and talking about this in, in such detail will make people think. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast. A lot of the time is like, you know, reflection and thinking. And so who knows yeah. what will come out of this? But it's it's a great it's great to hear you talk about it because it is important. Um you were, as we've heard, pretty you know, academically quite good. You were sporty. You could have had a career in in, in a host of uh, academic or sporting areas. Um, and you've mentioned about, you know, coming from an Asian household where parents value those uh, those careers. So in that in that sense, how did your parents react when you first got into the rave scene? Because I imagine at that time there was lots of discussion around in the media about the rave scene being bad and evil, and it's the opposite of going into a career of academia. Yeah, yeah. Listen, there was a lot of concerns, a lot, a lot of great concerns. But I'd got to the sort of the stage where I was a young man now, and they, my parents, uh, primarily my mum, because my dad was quiet. Uh, she was the driving force, but uh, you, you know, behind things and, and trying to steer. She did steer me really well. I come from an estate where, uh, and I've got to give credit to my mum, uh, who I love dearly, and, and uh, she steered me really well. I come from an estate where a lot of my friends became criminals, and trust me, I didn't. And anyone who comes from the Afro-Caribbean and Asian community, they know the score. We got dealt with. <laughs> We got dealt with, right? And it was no messing around. So uh, um, it was difficult because obviously they wanted the best for me. They wanted me to do really well. And, uh, you know, there was a chance of me to become Dr. Majid, you know, which I could have become. And, uh, you know, I did the, did the A-levels uh, in sciences and uh, and it looked like I was going to take that route. And, and again, it was like, and this is, this is going to be relevant now to where I'm going to go with this because when I was at school, um, I spoke to one of the head of sciences and he said to me, Imran, I said, sir, I'd like to become a doctor. Imran, don't think you're going to be bright enough to do it. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, I was like, really? And even then I was like, you said it to the wrong person. And then I kind of proved it was almost like a challenge from showing that I wasn't academically uh, um, uh, apt for the role, I started diving into material. 
Next minute, I'm scoring high grades. I'm smashing my fellow students who were right up there. And it was because I had a point to prove. Quite emotional when it comes to that. Really sorry. Because um, <clears throat> I, I, I always felt alone as a kid. I always felt alone because uh, uh, of the racism and stuff. It was, it was intolerable. And it was, it was quite, it was quite, it was quite dark uh, in places. And um, just give some moment, yeah. Um, I felt like I had, I had to prove a point. So I started to excel rapidly. And I'd come home and I'd be in my book night and day. And I'd be studying. And I'd be reading. And I just went into those tests. And I started turning heads. And I remember teachers saying, what's happened to this kid? What's happened to this kid? What's, what's, what, what, what? Why is it taking you this to do this? In the first few years, we saw nothing. Now all of a sudden you've done this and what's caused this? And um, then I got accepted into Birmingham University, which was a, a big thing for me, for me to get accepted to, to do medicine, to come from that area. I'm sorry, I don't want to sound like a fucking, right. you know, I got accepted and uh, and then anyway, right, I started to, um, uh, got into the racing and, uh, uh, I started to prove my parents that there's something here because very quickly I was gigging. Very quickly I was right. coming home with money. Very quickly I had a cupboard in my <laughs> I had a cupboard in my house, Tom, right? And it was like uh, it was for my socks. The socks were replaced with cash. <laughs> wow. And my my mum went in there one day and she was like, she came out, she went, What is this? And she was like, and it was like, I'm not joking, it was about four grand there. <laughs> right? And she was like, and I'm coming home in like Armani jeans and stuff, you know, and they were like, my brother's like, what's, yeah, so what, it was fun to get successful. What did that do for your life, um, given that, you you know, you just got emotional there about how you'd underachieved and then you started to achieve. And mm. this is, if you've got four grand in cash from performing, it suggests you're achieving quite well in that in that aspect of your life. What did that do for your confidence and your perso uh, personality and persona? Uh, what, in terms of the, the school period? No, no, succeeding early doors as oh, right, yeah, in, in, yeah. in this chosen profession. Um, yeah, because... It was just, listen, it was, I had this, I had this ideology early on. It's your appliance. How are you going to get to these people for them to take you seriously? So it was about breaking down doors. And then the methodology was, how am I going to break down those doors and what with and what am I going to use? So I went the next step, then most of my, the people around me, and I saw them. Some people just came through and they knew promoters and they were good, good artists and they broke through. I had to bash down doors, bash down doors, bash down doors. And, and one of the things I did do was, was intricately place myself and have a marketing strategy. So I'd get on a flyer, right? And it, it's really funny. I don't know if you remember going into record shops. You know, because you said you only got into the scene in 2000, but in the 90s. All right, stop, stop, don't remind people of that. They always, they always fucking say it. So listen, you, listen, they don't need listen, you reminding listen, them of that. Listen, well. listen, you're still 21 years, mate. That's bloody good going, bro. Right. <laughs> so so um, you go into record shops and you get like a table full of flyers. Well, I had a table in my room and I would get the flyer that I was on 
I'd put it on and I'd get a pile of them and I'd target promoters. And I started with writing a letter. My letter would be as long as my body. And it would just be about how passionate I was and how driven I was and how much I really, really wanted this. So um, uh, they'd get my letters. I remember sending a letter to Jez Bailey at Quest and I rang the phone at the office and I said, hi, I sent you a letter. I didn't even say my name. I just said, hi, I sent you a letter. Straight away, he went, Majika. <laughs> because they don't get that. They weren't getting that drive. And uh, so I was writing letters. I was collecting my flyers. Every flyer I would get to would be another notch on, on, on the sort of the post, so called to speak, on the stripe. I'd, I'd add that on the table. I'd go into Mixmag. I'd look at Mixmag. I'd look at the listings. I'd see what was going on. I'd buy it just for that reason. I'd see all the phone numbers. I'd ring all them promoters. And back then it was hard. It was it was expensive to do that from home. So um, I used to go to this. There was a dodgy phone box, Tom. There was oh, yeah. a dodgy. There was a dodgy phone box that became my office, and I was actually famous in the area for being in that phone box. And it was a dodgy phone box. So I didn't tell anybody. And uh, I made all my calls for free. What, what, it, just, it was just, it wasn't working or so, And so you got the free calls. Well, no, so, someone just showed me this. Was, uh, it, are you saying that you stitched up a phone box? That's what you're basically uh, saying. Uh, yes, no, maybe. No, okay. No. I was I was shown that this phone box. <laughs> I was shown this. Okay, a mate. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> all right. But anyway, I, I used this phone, right? And I was making all my calls, right? And uh, so I was, I was calling all these promoters building up my own data, building up my own network. And then every week I'd have like a pile of envelopes. I'd put the flyers in and I'd, I'd do a letter and I'd post all these promoters. So I had this drive and I knew I had to do this because if I didn't do this, it wasn't going to happen. And again, it was a challenge because there were people that were telling me, oh, you're not going to do it in this game. You're not going to get anywhere in this. Even my friends in County Close who, who I became distant with because they became jealous. Oh, you ain't going to get anywhere. And it was that same old thing. It was like that conversation I had with that famous teacher, Mr. Powell at Kings Norton Boys. You are not going to achieve this. And that just rang home and I thought, really? I'm not going to achieve it, but I like it. And I want to do it. It's not an ego thing. I like it. And I want to do it. And that was the same with medicine. I, I had a love and, an, and, and a fascination for medicine. And I still regret it sometimes because I have this huge empathy on people when it comes to medical. You can listen, you can be a, you can be a great doctor and have the knowledge, but if you don't care about people and give it time, you, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, so there was all those things of why I wanted to do it. And I, I love music. Music made me feel alive. It came when I came from a place of sort of darkness and alone. It was my, and quiet. I came into this place where I could come into my own and become this, express myself. And And were you... Would you class yourself as a raver before you were an artist, or did really it came so quickly that actually you didn't have much chance to be a raver? Well, I had I had a raving period, so I went to I went to you know I went to the rag market, the famous rag market. I went to some uh, illegal raves in Birmingham. Uh, I went I was on the rave circuit, so I was going out as a raver. Uh, I went to Amnesia House as a raver at Donington Park and stuff. Uh, but I was also on the sort of local circuit trying to aspire and get the mic and stuff. So I was going to all the little, what we call, you know, the equivalent of live lounges back then, you know, and I was I was hustling and, and trying to network and get the way. And so, yes, I was. I was a raver. I, I experienced raving, but I also very quickly uh, uh, saw, when I was at one rave, I went to a rave called um, uh, Raw at Hall Green uh, Dog Stadium. And I went Great in. name. Well done then. Great yeah. name. <laughs> yeah. Great name. Right. Yeah, yeah, they've got taste, haven't they? Uh, and then uh, I went there and uh, they had um, 
it was a big warehouse, and uh, I was I was in the, I was I was in the warehouse, and uh, it was the first time I'd ever been into a rave like that. Um, and they had a laser on, and when it first came down, I'd never seen anything like that apart from like a film. I associate the laser as a weapon. And when it came down, it went, Woof, and I was just like, whoa. I said to my friend, I said, what the hell? And then this MC stepped over the top through the, through the mist. And I remember it very visually. And he had some dreads. And it was Man Paris. And, you know, thinking back, and when I looked at it, I thought it was the Predator. <laughs> <you know> the <laughs> and then, any, and then any, any, any drugs, G, at the time? Or was no, this- no, 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 no. The euphoria of being there was like an adrenaline rush for me. Right. So I was buzzing. I was flying. And, and did you did you do drugs? Because they were an integral part of the scene. No, no, no. If, anyone who knows me mm. knows that I didn't go down that route. Why did you think you never did any drugs? Um, too scared. Too scared to take the... Uh, having a, a medical interest, taking the unknown into my system and not knowing what it was, was, was something... Uh, uh, was unethical for me. Okay. It was just Russian roulette. Fair enough. Uh, and uh, what was the Midlands scene like back then? I know you because you were going to lots of raves around the Midlands. Can you can you de- describe it for people who weren't uh, around at that time or in the Midlands? Uh, yeah, it was it was strong scene, strong strong scene. People came from people travelling all over the country anyway to go somewhere. You'd, 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 you'd go from Lands End to John O'Groats to find a rave, uh, but it was a strong scene. There was a, it was an epicenter. Uh, there was a lot of things. We had some key promoters here. You know, you had uh, the Amnesia, the, the Amnesia House guys. You know, the banging tunes like Neville and stuff, and, and, and the late Mickey Lyons, God rest his soul. Then you had uh, the, the the Midlands, like you know, had Pandemonium crew that were doing that were doing most Simon Rain, the famous infamous Simon Rain, who was behind Time, involved in the rag market, went on to form Gatecrasher. Uh, you had uh, Jez Bailey, the Quest guys. The list is endless. Uh, the coast to coast guys. There was a lot of things happening uh, around Birmingham and the Midlands. Lots and lots of things. We have a, a, an extensive history. And, and would you go raving elsewhere around the country as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know went to went to London, went to Oxford, went to you know um, raves in the middle of a field and stuff. Uh, Nottingham, just all over the place, wherever you could go. Really, I mean, geographically, at the beginning it was the Midlands, but then if there was something happening, then people were going because it was all about transport. So I didn't drive. So if, if there was a, a spot to jump in somewhere and go somewhere, of course, yeah. Okay, and and did you ever experience racism in the rave scene? Because I know that you've said that you've experienced it uh, in your childhood, at your school, and in society. But what about in the rave scene? Yeah, 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 yeah. Had um, had quite a lot um, of racism um, in the in the scene, um, and uh, uh, it was a dark period. Um, and, and as I talked about earlier. I was with a very famous household hardcore DJ uh, in Canada, and uh, we were speaking. And uh, someone said to me, to me in front of him about racism. He was like, "Oh, there's no racism," and I was like, I looked at him and quite disappointed. Um, so, what? I think, so, as a raver, did you experience racism from fellow ravers? As a raver, no. Okay. No. Did you find? I, I, I said that at the beginning of the interview. You, I said it was all about you, love. Yeah, did you find an acceptance perhaps that you didn't find elsewhere, and that was really sort of in, appealing and, yeah. and and made you feel safe? Yeah, yeah, there was a togetherness. Everybody, listen, people come up to you, where you're from, drink my water. Oh, how you doing? Girls coming up to you, yeah, hugging you, and you know, and 
and there was a taboo thing sort of like when I was a young kid it was like you know like, like girls wouldn't wouldn't want to date an Asian guy or, or have a, an Asian boyfriend because it wasn't the thing to do. The parents didn't really want it and friends would take the take the mick out of them. And to go into that environment, all of a sudden just have people mingling with me and girls mingling with me and stuff was 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 quite weird. amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> it was it was weird though, because the prejudice the prejudice right. had gone. The prejudice right. had right. gone. Amazing. And that was amazing that the prejudice had gone. And that was a very nice place, and that's why you can see why I warmed to that 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 place as much as I did. We really hope you're enjoying yet another one of Raw's in-depth interviews about the rave scene, which we are proud to say are now all curated into the British Library Sound Archive. All of us here at Raw HQ love how much you love what we do. And your generous one-off donations have been a huge help in covering our initial costs. But we're now a team of five, putting in a combined 80 hours a week for no wages, with big plans to expand further, and so our costs are going up. As such, we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing, as you've seen us do since our launch in July 2020. First up, go and check out our brand new website. It's rawuk.com, where you can find loads of cool extra content, and you can grab Raw's first ever range of merchandise. That's rawuk.com for our new flashy website. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can support us financially to create more content on an ongoing basis for less than the price of an oat milk cappuccino. Plus, you get great perks in return. Head to patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods. That's patreon.com forward slash raw UK pods to see exactly what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is basically the same. Uh, or if you're not asked about a membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or a repeat donation, then head to our website and click the PayPal link. A reminder of that new website URL yet again, rawuk.com. Big love and respect to you all. Please keep supporting us. Hope you enjoy the rest of the app. So let's uh, talk more about your performing. Um, I know you said from a very early age you were writing those letters, trying to get on mics, and and had having quite a, a lot of success doing so. But what was it that that made you decide that you wanted to be much more of a rave, much more than a raver? Was it seeing Man Paris that time? Oh, well, I saw Man Paris that time, and it wasn't that specific moment. It was the moment where I was just listening to tapes and stuff, and uh, I went to um, a, a rave put on by a very famous reggae band from Birmingham called UB40. And they were ravers, some of them. Uh, and my friend, who, who's still a dear friend of mine, and he's actually in my book, Earl Faulkner, he's the lead bass bassist for UB40. And he was running a rave called The Earthquake in mm. Mosley, uh, the famous, infamous Mosley Dance Centre. And it was popular because it was the only thing at the time in that area. And Mosley is a very, very arty, music, entertainment, media-led place. It's crazy, the stuff that goes on in Mosley. Um, and um, I went to that rave with some friends at the County Close crew, um, and um, I remember going in and went into the rave and uh, just saw some, some guy on the mic. He, I think he was, he became a, a little bit of a friend at the time called MC Reckless uh, from Borsal Heath here in Birmingham, a ghetto area, not far from Mosley. And, uh, and I just walked up the stairs because there was no security and barriers and things. I just walked up and I said, can I have a go? And I had a go. And then, uh, and um, didn't really know what I was doing, but just, just, just. Well, they, just let you, they, they just let you have a go. He, he did. He said, he said, yeah, go on. You know what I mean? Because, <laughs> you know, he was, he was, he was a you know, nice guy. It was a very multicultural area. And he was just like, yeah, just have a go, man. 
and I had a go. And then I came away with this thing like, oh, my God, right, I want to go back next week and have a go. And then um, uh, I started saying to my friends at County Class, you need to give me some tapes and stuff. I need to listen to what's acceptance and what, how the, the flow and, the, and, and stuff. And so I was listening to bits and bobs just to get an idea of, of complementing music. Uh, and then I went back the following week and I remember going into the reception and I still had that sort of blag from early age. And I walked in and, and, and uh, it was a guy called Jerry Parchment and he was the key engineer for UB40 for Labour of Love 1 and 2 and so on. All the big hits Jerry was like the engineer of. And he's still relevant today. He's like engineering for Skepta and people like that. And uh, and he was there and I was like, listen, I'm, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. Can I come in, please? And, and I'll MC. I don't want any, anything. I just If you just let me in. And he, he, he was there, like, literally for half an hour, like, thinking, what the hell is this kid, man? He just won't leave the reception area. And he didn't have the heart to tell me to do one, or like some people would have. He, he, he was very nice and warming, because they come from that place. They know what, what it's like to, to break into music and do stuff and get opportunities. So he said, right, in you go. And he let me in. And then I came off the mic, and he said, see you next week. And I was like, what? He goes, every week, you're on. And I was like, and then I, I was on every week and um, started doing that there. And uh, and then it just started to grow and progress. And then I all of a thought, all of a sudden, I just thought, I'm only emceeing at Mosley. There's more to Mosley than, than, than this, you know. Uh, so, uh, which was great. Mosley was great. It was, you know, brilliant. Um, um, and it's still there, Mosley Dad Centre. And, uh, and I just thought, you know, let's start doing other things. So I started to break out and go into other places. And I remember even going to Coast to Coast once and uh, uh, the, the infamous legendary from Birmingham, Lenny was on the mic and I just put my hand out like, really sheepishly. And, 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 and he actually did, he just went, <laughs> he gave me the mic. <laughs> Probably wouldn't have done that years on. <laughs> um, so uh, he gave me the mic and I had a little go in there and then uh, I didn't really go back there. And then uh, I then went to other places around Birmingham. Marco Polo was a famous bar which later on became a strip club, Alex <laughs> 11. Uh, but Marco Polo was very, very famous in the Ladywell area by the, by the rag market. That was a very famous place to go in to, to every Friday and Saturday, started emceeing there. And then just started to sort of knock on little things that were happening, little community, little raves, get on, get on. And then I started going for the big guns. And, as I, and then I started getting really intricate from, from back then. So you had like the Aston Villa Leisure Centre, and just just give people an insight of where I was with my mind and, and my head and how much I wanted to get the opportunity. So I thought, how do you find out who these rave promoters are and before they, they happen? Because there was no internet and stuff, so we didn't know who was who. So Aston Villa Leisure Centre was like one of the biggest prolific kind of places to put raving, uh, raving events on. So I'd contact um, Aston Villa. I'd speak to the, the, the management and I'd say, look, could you tell me what raves are happening here? And could you let me know who's putting them on? And they would. And then next minute, I'm on some of the biggest raves at Aston Villa. Even my my sort of predecessors or the guys who, my rivals or so-called so to speak, uh, established MCs from Birmingham, weren't on some of those shows uh, uh, because I networked and networked and networked. And that was the key thing here. It was yeah. the key thing. Well, I think I, I, I mean, I think that that's a common refrain throughout your career, and I'll, I'll, I'll come on to that in a bit. But in terms yeah. of your style, how would you describe it? And also, how did you get your name? 
Um, my name came from uh, the County Close Crew. <laughs> uh, uh, I should mention, right, uh, the County Close Crew consisted of a very well-known, he was a bit of a legend at the time, because he was he was he started sort of little rave movement, dance movement from sort of early hip-hop into the rave thing, called Miz. Um, and he, he went on to become Psycho Miz. And he was he was he was very popular with the kids. You know, we were all, everybody was like, oh, Nizzle, Nizzle, because he was funky, he was dressed well, and and uh, and uh, uh, and he was he was the guy who pushed the music, and he was the, he, he entered DMC, he didn't do that well, but he was the guy in the area that was known for trying to scratch and do his thing on the techniques, on the turntables and stuff. Then there was uh, a guy called Bim Bim Palmer, known as Firefox. Um, he 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 was a local DJ as well on the circuit, trying to make it. And then there was a, a young pair who I helped, and I actually helped them give them a name, and they became known as Jekyll and Hyde. And they were billed as young, England's youngest DJs, and they played a lot, a lot of places, but they just didn't have the drive, and they just fizzled mm. out, just fizzled out. Um, and we was in the garage. We used to have a little garage, and it was like our little community hub. And uh, uh, his name was Boz, the brother of Firefox, and he, he built a little sound system. And we used to go in there every day after whatever, college, school, you know, work, uh, stuff, late teenage years. And um, we were all sat there. And by the time I was going to Mosey Dance Centre, we was all saying, um, what should I call myself? And like names were flying around, MC Ninja and Cobra and bloody, you know, and all sorts of stuff, T-Rex, <laughs> madness. T-Rex. Um, I, just, Honestly, I don't know that you'd have had the career that you'd have had if you'd have called yourself MC T-Rex. No, no, I, I, no, no. And then, and then I said, like, something rhyming with my surname, Magic. And then uh, his name's Chris Marner, one of the half of Jekyll and Hyde. He went Magica. Uh, no, he went Magic, Magic. And then I went Magic. I said, it just sounds like... And I just went Magica. And then all of a sudden, people started saying, oh, Mr. Magic, because apparently there was some... Yeah. Some some magician guy on telly. Yeah, didn't I didn't know about him at the time. I didn't. Right. Obviously, I got reminded and told about him after a lot. Yeah. Into, yeah. To this day, um, hence I'm talking about him anyone now. that does anyone that doesn't know. It was a sort of 1970s, maybe 80s TV show with a, a guy. It was a teacher, and and he had this hair, and it just sort of flapped up in the air. And I don't know why it flapped up in the air. I can't remember that much, but that was that that was the the TV show around then. I remember we'll fla- flash a clip up of Mr. Majika or something during this. Um and, and what's what's what was your style then? What what how do you describe your style of MCing? Well it was I was still experimenting. So then I was trying to sort of do little rhymes and stuff and and moving around. I was very much into into sort of dancing. So I dance around because I was just expressing myself. Um, so I was very much finding myself. The obviously the MC that I went on to become was the crowd hype. I was a crowd hype MC. I was a host. I was uh, a guy who interact and talk very clear and audible. I had those skills from an early age, um, uh, which just just unfolded in front of me uh, and, and developed. Which and how long how long did it take to develop your stagecraft? Because I imagine you know no one's great when they first start, are they? No, no, no. Of course not. It, obviously, it just took it took you know nineteen. 19- 89, I started going out to the raves, 1990, 91, uh, 92 were the playground years, just learning and watching and doing stuff and, and making some mistakes, which we can talk about. Um, um, and then uh, around sort of end of 92, I started to listen because I started to, for example, I went to mythology uh, as a raver, uh, got on the mic they never used to book MCs. And one of them, he's a, he's a very famous promoter called Chris Griffin. 
uh, went on to promote global gathering and all sorts of stuff. And, and he used to say, I, I, never, I never book MCs because they just turn up. They just go on. Why do I want to book and play an MC for? They never had any 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 sort of acknowledgement and any respect for an MC. They knew they worked, but they just knew that they didn't have to pay for them. Um, so I turned up to that rave and I got on. And I remember I was MCing for like SS and Groove Rider. Still get reminded about those sets today. Um, and I started listening to the tapes, and it was just like some of them like oh, some of, <laughs> some some of the bits I was like yeah. Nice. And then I started just working my way and I developed the, the crowd hype experience. And I, I came into my own properly uh, end of 92, 93, where I started to really experiment that style in places like Kinetic in Stoke-on-Trent, which was like a second home for me. Um, they gave me a big opportunity. I loved that place. Absolutely got fond memories of going there. And that was where I was spotted by Mr. Cox, uh, and I, that's where I sort of built the, 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 the form and the technique of what I became known which for. Which DJs that you DJed for in those early years really suited your style in particular? Obviously, Carl Cox, that sort of goes without saying, really, because you were his, were his mic man. But, but from those, you know, the, the, the early names that you, were, that you were MCing for, Groove Rider, Doc Scott, LSD, Swanee, Pilgrim, etc. which ones really suited you? Do you know what? Any of them, because you remember it was it, it, it was like one sound, and it was like yeah. it was just playing to that sound and, and right. adapting to that sound, and so it, I could fit in in pretty much everything and anything. Uh, and then even later on in my career, I've gone on to host big events like in, in, in Holland. I was like a resident MC for Dance Valley, introducing you know house acts and hard house acts and. You know, you know, Tiestos and all that type of stuff and, 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 and hosting the main stage for Global Gathering in the God's Kitchen area and introducing, you know, Paul Van Dyke and Judd Jules and stuff. So there was, there was, there was areas and I, and I, I, I could, I could fall into, into pretty much anything. It was about understanding the music and feeling it. And I, I, I could, and, and, and I did, and I, I never tried to irritate the sound, you know, Okay. Uh, Kate Mulligan asks, who was your favourite DJ to work with? Um, obviously, listen, without, without saying, um, my memories of Carl are at the top because he took a punt on me. He took a chance on me. He chose me that's become a part of my legacy. And I'm so lucky to have had that so early on in my career, so early on, that it's still with me to this day. And it's, it's, it's often referred to and referenced to. Um, and aside from Carl, because we'll talk more about your link yeah, up yeah, yeah, a bit yeah. later. Yeah, yeah, of course, which, yeah. Which, I mean, obviously it goes without saying, doesn't it, that one of your favourite DJs was Carl Cox. But again, yeah, yeah, which, yeah. which, which one... Apart from Carl, were you, you know, you really, really enjoyed working? Do you know what? I liked working with Groove Rider. Okay. Who I am. Why in particular? I am in good friends. I'm good friends with, with Ray. And um, because he was always appreciative of me and the support, he supported me um, a lot. Uh, there was even times where he, he doubted me in certain places, but that was just him because he was professional. And I remember um, Groove Connection, the agency, the famous agency that 
looked after and housed Fabio Groove, Bookham, Brian G, Mickey Feen, uh, uh, and then later on Bailey and a few other people were added to the, to the thing, Reiki. Uh, and they, Sarah, uh, the, the former partner of Fabio, they spotted me on an overseas show and approached me and said, listen, we obviously know of you, you've been around a long time, but that was wicked. We want you to come and do some tours. And I remember Groove and Frost saying to Sarah, are you sure? Really? They didn't get it. And uh, she said, no, trust me. And, uh, and I went over to do the show in Germany and they were, they were sat on a table um, top. They were sat on a table like Simon Cowell in X Factor, like you. Like, <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm, I'm being serious. They were sat on this table like you. What's, what's, what's this all about? Come on, what's next? Uh, can our day get any worse? Right? <laughs> and then I come on and I, I went in straight away. I knew what I was up against because she already showed me. Again, back to that thing. Really? You're doubting me? Okay. So I went in and just went in. Next minute, I felt this little tap on my shoulder. They were both there, skanking, dancing right behind me. And then, um, but they've always stayed with me. And, and Jack Frost, I remember going to London, Jenkins Lane, playing at a rave. And uh, we was only in, in, in Ireland uh, a few weeks before. And we was in Belfast and it was like serious high rate. <laughs> I, I've, read, I, I've read that part of uh, Frostburg. It sounds like you were, um, <laughs> how do we politely say it, uh, a bit nervous. Mate, <laughs> mate, that trip to Ireland was like a countdown to Armageddon. <laughs> Every week I'm, I'm like, shit, it's getting closer. I'm going, to, I'm going to Belfast. When I got to the airport, I'm questioned by a police officer. Why are you going there? I'm like, what the hell? I'm like a teenager. Right? I'm going to Belfast. I know it's dark over there. I'm already being spoken to by a police officer when I'm going to on a plane. I'm like, Pfft. then I've come off the plane and I've seen all the security and I'm like, even more like, nah, this is just not healthy. Then I've gone through the, the checkpoints and I'm like, really? And I'm seeing the guys with the guns and then, then I see the big murals with the balaclavas on and I'm like, no, man. Then I'm, I'm, in, this, I'm in this hotel and um, the hotel's called the Europa Hotel. I only yeah. found most, out most bomb, most bomb hotel in Europe, I think, at the like, time. Listen, I was <laughs> just about because, because <laughs> We'll stick him in there. <laughs> because it's next door to the British Ballet Company. So it was the most bombed hotel. And uh, and I had this thing, when I was in my room, I had this thing to myself saying, every time I get up and look out the window, I'm going to see a patrol. And I'm, I'm not lying. Every time I got up, I saw a patrol. And I saw this tank-like, like heavy-duty vehicle with armed soldiers. It was like out of a film for me and what I'd seen on the, on the TV. This is the first time I'm experiencing it. I then went out for a walk, brave enough to just go out for a walk to because I wanted to just go to a shop. And um, went out, reluctant, but went, I thought, well, I'm just going to do it. Went out, right in the city centre, and then I see this guy on the corner, like a bloody sniper, and he's like that. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I said, can I speak to you? And, and I went, yeah, and I said, because it was all new to me, I went, why are you like that on the floor, like, 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 like in that position, rather than just watching? Because over here, mate, it happens at a drop of a hat. And I was like, where am I? Right. <laughs> so, and then I found out later on we were we were performing for like a mob that 
knew the mob. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Brilliant. And then, and then back to Frost. Frost, he said, listen, come, we're going to go for a walk. As he does in his voice, come on, we're going to go for a walk. And we just went for a walk through the Shankill Road, which then I found out is like a serious, notorious, badass road. And my man walked around that road like he lived there. But forget it. We, we, we forget that he comes from like a ghetto. All right, it's in London. But he still had that mentality. He was like, yeah, let's go, man. And then all these people were coming out the woodwork. Yes, Frost. Yes. I'm like, what the hell? These are these Irish people. Oh, hey, 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 Nigel. I'm like, what the hell, man? Um, so we got back to England and I was at um, Jenkins Lane and this uh, I was on the mic and this 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 kid, this 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 guy just came on, pulled the mic off me. Nigel, it was almost like he pulled off his top and he had like instead of the Superman S, it was like the J, turned into like superhero, went to the guy, give him that mic now, give it in now. <laughs> and this kid sort of shook from all from being like a really sort of roguish guy, turned into like a and gave me the mic and I've always got fond memories of those guys and that, that was always very supportive. And so, yeah. So, so they're the DJs that you enjoyed working with. What about... Uh, Slipmat, Slipmat, Slipmat. Uh, I've got to say Slipmat. Like, the the man, the legend. Matt, great, great experiences with him. You know, uh, really good guy. I remember going to playing in Scotland at Ayrshire, big, big, big grave. The promoter didn't come to pick me up to take me to the airport. I'm like 50 miles from the airport. Matt's in the same hotel. I'm like... Are you going past Birmingham by any chance? And he went, yeah. So I ended up skipping my flight and jumping in the car with him. And uh, I remember him playing me like SL2 stuff before we even heard it come out and go into the charts. And there's one particular track, I can't even forget the name of it. And, uh, and I, I actually got him to play it all the way. And he didn't complain once. He just, he did it. Like, I, I bet he was happy to do so. But yeah, Matt was good. Matt was, Matt was brilliant. He's a top, he, well, he is a top man. Uh, and in terms love of him, MCs, which, which MCs did you really rate from the 90s racing? <clears throat> Um, I, I, I loved Man Paris because that was my first exposure. I liked the hardcore generals when I got to, to perform alongside them a couple of times. They were a London outfit and they used to come dressed in militant gear, dreads and stuff. And <clears throat> they were very friendly though. They were very welcoming. But they, they very quickly sort of vanished. It kind of filtered off. Um, uh, I really liked them. Um, other MCs, you know, um, I, I actually... Really liked, um, even though I've got like a, a sort of uh, a turbulent uh, sort of past with him. I really liked Lenny. Uh, he, he was great, great guy um, in terms of what he was doing, and I was very inspired by what what he did. Um, very well, Ian, Ian Saunders asks, uh, in terms of being inspired, does he regret nicking some of Lenny's lyrics early on in his career? Is that right? Are you stealing Lenny's lyrics? <laughs> yes. So basically. I was 17 years old, okay? I was 17 years old, and it was a strap line. And let's just, let's just put it out there. The strap line was everybody rocking, everybody jumping. I can't remember the next part. Are you bubbling or are you, are you, are you boogieing or something like that? That was it. That was it. It was just that strap line. And I loved it so much. I used it. I was 17 years old. But I paid the ultimate kind of price. I was, I was he communicated in the way he knows how. And that's, everybody who knows Lenny knows that he will not mince his words. Mm. He doesn't care where he does it. If he wants to do it on a platform, he'll do it on a platform. It's, if he's got something to say, he will say it. There's no holes barred with that man. And he took it to the mic. So, 
And what you've got to remember is those sequence of events and those times and those type of uh, that era, they're archived in history. Our sets are archived in history. People talk about sets and stuff. And I still hear of that incident still to this day. And, and he took me, he took it to the mic and he said some not so nice things. They were, they were very horrible. For me, there was a great impact because it made me very, very nervous. I was very uh, insecure, was very, uh, felt very threatened. Um, he had some people around him at the time because, you know, he was, you know, he, 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 he was friends with like firms, you know, you know, you know, football hooligans. And I remember one of them coming up to me in a rave and, and saying to me, if you don't put the mic down, I'm going to knock you out. And this was a grown guy who was known for going head to head with Millwall. Do you know what I mean? And and there I, there I was, you know, stood face to face with this hooligan guy saying, got to put the mic down now, I'm going to bash you. Did I really deserve that? Come on, man. I was, I was, I was 17 years old. Did I deserve a telling? Of course I did. I, did, I probably deserved some guidance, you know. Mm. And if I look back on it, you know, it wasn't the thing to do. And I remember going in a, in a magazine interview, I think it was to the core, and I actually spoke about it quite openly. I said, listen, I was, I was, I was 17. I, I used a little strap line um, and he took it to the mic. And the way he took it to the mic was, was it reminded me of, I don't know if you know, um, if you ever listen to any bashment sessions where it's like the clash. So you'll get a reggae artist clashing another one or the, the other, other artists might not even be there, but the reggae artist has used that platform to vent his opinions. And it, I, I remember listening to those kind of sessions before the, the, that, the incidents is with Lenny. I, I remember listening and it, it reminded me very much of something like that. He took the mic and he was very expressive and what he said and the words were very hurtful. And if he, if you, if you was to ask him, um, does he have any regrets? He'd probably say hell no, because that's how he is as a person. He's just very opinionated. Do I respect him? Yeah. I, I, I listen, I have had some really, really nice moments and chats with him, but there is, there has been a volatile past with, 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 with going back to that incident and stuff and his opinions of me. Um, but life is life. I just, I just crack on. I just get on with what I've got to do. Uh, I respect him as a person. He's, he, I look at it. I looked up, up to him as sort of a pioneer, uh, one of the first, uh, uh, and he excelled very well. I mean, he, he, he traveled a bit and he did some raves and I know he went to, he went overseas and did some stuff and but geographically in the midlands that was his that was his domain at the time and uh so you had know. a bit of a, you had a bit of beef with lenny then over that uh, yeah, yeah. Zen, zen sergei asks which mcs <clears throat> did you not get on with i mean obviously we've got lenny that's had that you've you've got on with him over the years but you've had a fallout with him are there any other mcs that you've uh, had issues with so to speak um <sighs> Are there any MCs that you haven't had issues with, so to speak? <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> Maybe that's easier. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's, there's not really beef that I've had with MCs, uh, really, no. Uh, indifferences, maybe might, some might have opinions of me and stuff, but not not to the incident that we just talked about. Nothing, nothing like that at all. No, nothing. There might have been some rivalry. So, for example, I'll talk to you about Sharky. Mm. Um, and when Sharky came through, and again, um, I was young, many, many years ago, I had a style. I didn't own the style, but I didn't know how to express myself properly then. And I remember the style was, it was just very simple techniques in hyping up crowds. Nobody was doing it. I was doing it. 
And it was just very simple, you know, talking to the crowd, interacting with them, engaging with them, and then doing a little countdown to build them up to make loads of noise. And he came out and he was the first person to, for me to see doing it. And I just remember, you know, in the press and stuff, saying, look, you know, I felt lucky. It, 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 it sort of, you know, jumped on my style. Because uh, I remember being at a rave at Fusion, big Fusion event at Farnborough, and it was my first one. And I went up and there was a lot of hype for me being there because I've never done one and it was a big rave. And I went up there and I absolutely went up there, ripped a scale of noise, it was just crazy. And then he went up there and never heard of this kid, never saw him, I just saw this young kid, like, you know, and um, he, he stepped up on the mic and he, he, he adapted the same technique and I was just like, wow. And listen, I didn't own it, it's just at the time, it, I just didn't cope with it well. However, we, we were at loggerheads and stuff. And I remember, uh, not this is nothing to do with him, but he had some friends at the time and they were very protective of John. And uh, I was at a United dance event and one of them stood right in front of me. And I'm a big boxing fan, right? So if anyone remembers the, the, the fight that four or five years ago of Carl Frock and um, uh, George Groves, George Groves goes in the middle of the ring at the beginning of the fight and he just stares at him. Carl Frock's looking at him thinking, what's this geezer staring at me for? Like I've done something to his family. Just a boxing match. This geezer stood at me like that. And then he said in his words, you effing packy. I was like, Sticks man was stood right next to me. And this was the type of level, level of abuse I was getting. These got there. And I believe it was the same firm. My phone number was leaked to, um, to some people. And at that time, it was very coincidental because that was in my face. You can't get any bigger than that. Um, I was getting calls at home. My mum was taking them calls. And they were like, you know, if your son comes to United Dance tonight, he's going to get it, the effing packy. And that was dark, man. That was dark. But that was nothing to do with him. He didn't come down and back that. But that was the level of things of how harsh it got. But anyway. How, I, 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 no, no, I, before we go on, I want to explore that. How, how did you feel about <clears throat> receiving phone calls like that, or your mum receiving phone calls <clears throat> like that? Listen, man, come on, what would you, what would you do? Well, yeah, well, I mean, I'd be terrified. Yeah. I mean, I'd yeah. be terrified and I'd be furious as well. Yeah. Listen, I was, I was absolutely livid and I was disgusted. People don't know the half of the stuff that I was getting, you know. Uh, uh, what, how did your mum react to get those calls? Very, you know? very, very distressed, very yeah. worried, very worried. And... Because you're trying to, because you're trying to convince her that this is the career for you, that this is an yeah. accepting and open scene and world and, and and industry that you're going to go into, and you're getting people making phone calls like that to her yeah. Uh, yeah. about your career. She must have been thinking, oh, "I wish she was a doctor." <laughs> listen, yeah, listen, of course. And I remember on that particular gig, my brother, uh, I've mentioned it before. My brother comes from like a, I cast him as a school of hard knocks, which were a very rough school, very rough of, of his time. Celio boys, um, he uh, he was into martial arts. He boxed with a family, a very well-known family in Birmingham, called the McCrackens, who he's very good friends with still, and they trained like Anthony Joshua. Uh, he went on to become a, a, a world champion uh, weightlifter, Olympic lifting. So he knew a lot of heads. He knew a lot of heads, and he's a, he's a lawyer today, believe it or not. And he, he, knew, he knew a lot of he knew a lot of heads. And he said to me, "Listen, you need to take someone." He said, "I can't go tonight, but you need to take someone." So uh, we got a friend of his called Tony. And uh, nothing happened, mate. It was just, they were just trying to intimidate, use intimidation tactics 
to 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 keep me away from things. It just didn't work. And look, people didn't realise that I did have people around me. I didn't really call on them because I was quiet. But there was times when I had to start calling on people because I was I was I was I felt threatened. And did you still go to those events when you were when your mum was getting those calls saying you're going to get done? I, I still went to that rave the next day. I was there and I still did my thing. I went up on stage. Were you scared? I wasn't because I had Tony with me. Right. Fair <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and he came, he came, and you wouldn't mess with him. You, right. you, you know when you've got the aura of someone, you just know. Mm. And, and Tony was there. And I, but I shouldn't have had to have done that. No, no, absolutely not. I, I, but I, th- you, there's, there's some questions that have come in on this, and MC Focus in particular says, I'm interested to hear how he found the Birmingham scene, particularly the drum and bass scene, but the Birmingham scene back in the day, because it was obviously associated with gangs, and Bass Man was the prominent Brum MC. And how did Majika fit into that scene and that circuit? Did you ever have problems with gangs? I mean, you know, DJ Sharky's mate is is one thing, but we know that they're that, that, that these events were run by gangs. Did you ever have any issues in that regard? And if not, how did you avoid it? The, the only the only difficulties I had uh, with gangs was uh, the Zulus to begin with, because um, obviously, you know, I had some of them opposing me because they, you know, they didn't like me because of an association or a, a conflict with, with another artist. So I had a few little issues with, with some of those. Um, um, and then the, the other one was we, uh, when I say we, myself and my brother's friend, uh, called Shaquille, I've got to give him a mention, we put out a rave on in 1991, um, and it was called Illusion at the Mosley Dance Centre. And uh, we put it on, and it became very successful, very successful. And they landed on us, and it was, it was the football guys listen i've got friends who are part of that firm today I'm, I'm very very close my good personal friend barrington patterson who everybody knows zulu baz he's my close mm-hmm. one of my closest friends and uh, uh he's a part of them and and you know just talking about an experience about them he was nothing to do with this incident by the way and they came to the gig to rob it and they did and they came and, and because that's where they came from they came from thuggery they came from robbing and stealing they came from causing chaos and stuff you know i'm sure people we've all done things that we regret but that was that was my only experience of sort of gang stuff later on uh, not directly uh, when we started putting on events and we uh, raveology was starting to get successful it became um, the place to go and when it became the place to go everybody wanted to go everybody and that meant the hood and from the hood and the ghettos gangs would come out and people know that's I'm not being you know cynical there. I'm just telling, I'm being I'm being honest. And they came out, and some of the the, the, the some of the, the the restrictions or some of the things that we had to put in place as a promoter because of doors getting rushed was unbelievable. Honestly, I mean, an air nightclub, you wouldn't think it was a nightclub. This place was like dressed like Alcatraz, like a prison. It would have like proper corrugated iron steel fencing around it with a dog outside and stuff. And I remember on one of the events, um, it wasn't just um, it wasn't just my event. There was a, a number of events that were going on, which urban crowd or the gangs came to. And they even got the, are they the, the Royal Constabulary from Ulster, the RCU? RUC. Yeah, RUC. Yeah, was it, sorry? RUC. <clears throat> RUC. They had the RUC, West Midlands Police had the RUC division come to Birmingham to manage certain gang 
wow. certain gang situations. <laughs> so, and they had them at one of the at the events once. I couldn't believe it when I saw them. I was just like, uh, so it was it was pretty pretty harsh and, and a bit dark at one point. So uh, how how have you avoided then any real? problems with gangs given it was so prevalent at that point <clears throat> listen i've always been i always believe right that uh, if you're wrong you're not strong and i've i've never never uh, disrespected those people or had any had any reason or had any in, involvement and i've had a lot of people around me that may have grown up alongside them or known them and stuff like that so i was pretty okay and then you know very early on is when I had Baz with me, from, uh, you know, and Baz was right at our side and he played such a role in looking after us, but he didn't just look after us. This is why I've got to give this guy props. He looked after the racing because I'll tell you what, mate, the love that that man's got, I don't think he gets the props that he deserves. Yes, he's been on, he's been on, um, Dan, um, what's his name? Uh, the Britain's Hardest with uh, Mr. Dyer. He's been on his programs and he's had a book written and stuff and he's done loads of stuff and been featured in the film. But and he's been in the paper here, Birmingham Mail, countless times. Um, he doesn't get the props he deserves. He, I think, single-handedly influenced a demeanour because if they didn't respect the authorities or anyone else, they respected him. And uh, and he comes with love in his heart, even though he comes from the hooligan era. He's a, a very very lovely guy, and. Uh, he changed the landscape in terms of the atmosphere uh, and how people were. He played a big role in that. And I, and I know there's gonna be a lot of people that agree. Well, that's it for another episode of Raw, and if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to get involved. All of us here at Raw HQ buzz hard of how much you, the Raw crew, enjoy our work, and your generous cash donations have been a huge help since our launch. But we're now a team of five, putting in combined 80 hours a week for no wages. We've got loads of plans to go further, expand our team and offer, but that does mean that our costs are also increasing. So we could really use your help to keep Raw growing and developing as you've done since we started. So please do check out our website initially. It's rawuk.com for interesting extra content and to get your hands on our first ever range of raw merchandise. That's rawuk.com. We've also launched a new membership scheme where you can donate to create more interesting and fun content on an ongoing basis and you'll even get stuff in return. So head to patreon.com forward slash rawukpods. That's patreon.com forward slash rawukpods to see what's on offer. You can also join our YouTube membership, which is the same. Or if you're not bothered about membership, but you'd like to support us with a few quid as a one-off or repeat donation, head to our website and click the PayPal link. That website URL, one more time, rawuk.com. Respect to you for your support and for getting to the end of this episode. Please keep supporting us and help ensure there's more quality content coming your way on a regular basis. Oi, oi. Raw. Raw. Raw.